Welcome. Welcome to our new preaching series. This term and next, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read to you now from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. I'm reading from the NIV. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we start a new series. Last year, we looked at our vision and our values. We took a a long walk through Exodus, and then we spent time rediscovering and refreshing our understanding of spiritual gifts before we then spent Advent eagerly awaiting the gift of Jesus. Now we get into this letter of 1 Corinthians. And this week, as an introduction, we're going to ask two key questions. We're going to ask a a where question. Where are we? Where are we in Scripture? Who are we listening to? Who is being written to in its original form? And then we're going to ask why. Why why bother spending two terms, 26 weeks, in a letter that was written 2,000 years ago? How could that be helpful to us in modern-day London and beyond? So where are we? Where are we in Scripture? Well, we're in 1 Corinthians, a letter, sometimes called an epistle. It's not Paul's only letter to this church. The the title 1 Corinthians is a bit of a giveaway. In fact, there were probably three or four letters written by Paul to this church in this city. Some scholars believe that scattered through what we have as 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are glimpses or sometimes whole sections of those other letters. What we do know is that we have here scripture. We have scripture, God breathed, that has been handed down to us over the centuries. And with letters in the New Testament, sometimes scholars have said it's like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. Now, generally today, when someone has a telephone conversation, you're in the room with them because their pocket has vibrated and they've taken out their smartphone. And and so sometimes you can even see the person speaking. But for those of us who are a bit older, we can remember telephones that were plugged into the wall and were fixed in one part of the house. And so what would sometimes happen is the phone would ring and the person, someone would leave the room you were in and you just hear their conversation at a distance. And you'd hear the person in the same house as you, but obviously you wouldn't hear the person they're talking to. And you'd have to try and work out 
what that other person was saying from the responses you were hearing. Now, of course, if you knew the person well, and if you knew who they were talking to, you had much greater understanding of the conversation. I could always tell if my wife Gwen was receiving a phone call from her mother because I knew her mum and I knew that Gwen's tone was slightly changed and her voice was slightly increased because her mum was a bit deaf. And I, I knew Margaret well. I knew the sorts of questions she would be asking. So an understanding, not just of who was speaking, but who they were speaking to, was incredibly helpful in understanding the conversation. The same is true when we come to a letter in the New Testament. The more we can understand both about the person writing and about the people they're writing to, the greater insight we will get into the truth that is held within that letter. And so we're going to spend a bit of time today asking who was Paul and and what was Corinth like and what was the church like. And then we're going to say, why does it matter? Why is it important for us now to study this letter? So how do we start? We start like this. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Now, we don't know what Paul looked like. Here are a few pictures of him. The earliest picture we have of him comes from the 4th century, a cave painting in the 4th century. And then we have Renaissance pictures of him. But we don't really know what he looked like. But we can know what he was like because we have lots of information about him in the New Testament. There are 266 name checks for Paul or Saul in the New Testament. His name is mentioned more than anybody else apart from Jesus. If you're interested, the name Jesus is referred to 1,310 times. I know some of you will be very keen to know that fact. And we can summarise what Paul was like based on these references. Many we find in in the second two-thirds of the book of Acts, but also in his letter. So what do we know about this man? Well, we know he was born in Tarsus. He was born to Jewish parents who seemed to have been granted Roman citizenship. Tarsus was a Roman settlement. And so Paul inherited Roman citizenship. This comes in very useful a number of times, not least in Acts 22, 39, when the fact that he's a Roman citizen gives him permission to speak to a crowd and not be arrested. Paul was raised a Jew. He was zealous for the Torah, the Old Testament law. He became a Pharisee. This is a man who most likely knew the whole of the Old Testament by heart. Maybe you set yourself the target of learning some scriptures this year. Well, Paul knew them all. He was multilingual. We know he spoke Aramaic and Greek and he was spoken Hebrew. He was a tent maker or leather worker by trade who often balanced ministry with earning his living through work. He was a persecutor of the church. The first reference we have to him in scripture is when he stands and holds the cloaks 
of those who were stoning Stephen to death. And we're told he approved of that act. He pursued Christians. And on one of these trips to pursue Christians and take them to prison, he is taken prisoner by Jesus. He has this powerful encounter with the risen and ascended Christ and his life is changed in a moment. He had no Christian roots, but he was steeped in the Old Testament and the prophetic hope of a Messiah. He is saved, baptised, baptised in the Holy Spirit, receives a calling from God, and then goes into obscurity. He has a season when no one knows him until Barnabas goes and gets him. We know he was single, never married. He needed others, most notably Barnabas, to encourage him into leadership. He learned to lead within a team. He was set apart by a team to be part of a team, and he always worked in a team. He got tired, lonely, ill, and at times wanted to give up. He was beaten, Stoned, shipwrecked, robbed, slandered, threatened and left for dead. He saw success and failure in ministry, had great friends and fell out with them. He raised the dead and carried long-term illness. God used him powerfully and at times he felt he'd achieved nothing. Why is this important? Why is this little biography important to us? Because if we're not careful, friends, we can sanitise the people of Scripture. We can think they are totally other than us, that they don't understand our lives and our stresses. And yet this little glimpse of Paul's life shows that he was a man just like us, with all our insecurities, with all our challenges. Yes, he was called by God, but so are we. And he was inspired by God to write scripture, which is unlike us. But it's helpful to understand him as we start to read his words. It will help us understand some of the phrases he uses, his tone, his expression, what he's trying to achieve. So we read he writes to the church of God in Corinth. Where was Corinth? Well, it's here. It was a Roman city in southern Greece. It was both ancient and new. Ancient, it had been around for hundreds of years in that location. And yet in 146 BC, because of revolt, it had been destroyed. It was rebuilt by Julius Caesar about 90 years before Paul is writing these letters. It was a Roman colony, a little Rome, if you like. So a bit like Tarsus, where Paul was born. Many Roman citizens lived there who'd been given uh, land and property as a reward for their service to the empire. It was the regional capital of Achaia. Scholars disagree about its exact size, somewhere between 50,000 and 250,000. 
Even if it was only 50,000, that would have been a significant city in the ancient world. It is geographically significant. As you can see on the map, it, it sits on this little kind of peninsula in between northern Greece and southern Greece. That, that little stretch of land is only four miles across, which meant if you wanted to transport goods, you could sail into one side, carry the goods for four miles, and then sail off the other side. Sometimes small boats were actually lo loaded onto rollers and pushed across by slaves. A lot of effort, you might think, but it saved you a 200-mile sea journey. It was promiscuous and polytheistic. The city hosted uh, the temple of Aphrodite, the Roman god of love, but in reality, sex. This temple sat on top of the Acrocorinth, a hill of just under 2,000 feet. To give you an idea, that's twice the height of the Shard in London. It towered over the city. This temple of love and sex contained a thousand priestesses who also worked at night as sacred prostitutes. At the foot of this hill, there was a temple to the worship of Melikertes, the patron deity of navigation. Sailors would come and pay their tribute there for a safe journey. The city also housed a temple to Apollo and celebrated music, song and poetry alongside worship of the perfect male body. Amidst these three major deities, there were all the host of Roman gods with their family shrines and forms of worship. Corinth was religious. It was eclectic. It was promiscuous. It was also into its sport. The Isthmian Games happened every other year and was a sporting event second only to the Olympics held in Athens. Into this city, Paul plants a church. In Acts 18, we read this, Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogues, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So in Acts 18, verses 1 to 18, we read about the planting of this church in Corinth. Paul is in Corinth for about 18 months in the late 40s, 48 to 49 AD. He writes these letters about five years later. He plants a church, starting with the Jews and then moving out to the Gentiles, which grows to somewhere between 100 and 200 believers. 
We work that out based on the number of references we have to individuals and also because the church met in one place. And Roman houses at that time could host up to 200 people, often in an exterior courtyard. Paul was in Corinth longer than any other city with the exception of Ephesus, which incidentally he goes to next. You can read about it in Acts 19. Imagine a church made up of Jews and Gentiles in an eclectic city with much diversity. The church mirrored that diversity. The Jews were religiously homogenous. They had the same faith, but culturally diverse. Some coming from Israel, some coming from Rome and elsewhere in the empire. Gentile converts included previous followers of Apollos, Aphrodite and Melisertes. Some were merchants and very rich. Some were able seamen and very poor. This is a church that included former prostitutes and probably their former clients. It is a church full of people saved by grace, but in desperate need of the ongoing transforming power of grace. Paul, a man just like us, planting a church in a city like Corinth and seeing a church grow up that is diverse amongst its people. Why does any of this matter? (laughs) Well, it matters because in this brief summary, hopefully we've begun to see that we have a lot in common with Corinth, that our church has a lot in common with the Corinthian church. It's helpful for us to spend time with this church because it is a church just like us. A number of years ago, in fact, 38 years ago, I preached my first sermon and I preached out of 1 Corinthians. And at the time, I remember thinking there's quite a difference between a city dweller and someone who lives in a more rural or provincial setting. But that's no longer the case. We now carry Corinth in the palm of our hand. We carry all those influences with us. We are all at one level Corinthians. So it's helpful to study because this is a city just like our city. But it's also helpful to study because this is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. They're very familiar words for many of us, but let's not let their familiarity rob them of their power. Last term, we spent time looking at the role of spiritual gifts in our worship. We reminded ourselves of their importance to build us up and to equip us. So here, writing to Timothy, Paul reminds us that scripture is for the common good, that scripture is for building up, that scripture is for equipping. 
It equips us through teaching, rebuking, correcting and training. But we do not come to 1 Corinthians for academic study. We come to 1 Corinthians to be equipped that we might carry out every good work. Good works are kingdom works. Salvation, sanctification, social action and signs and wonders. What's more, these good works have been set before us by the risen Christ. Let's listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why study this book? Because it is equipping us for good works and it is speaking truth into us in an ever-changing world. We'll not only be preaching through this letter, we'll be unpacking it in our life groups. If you go on our app or look at the website, you will be able to find each week the scriptures that we are going to be studying. I want to encourage us all to immerse ourselves in these words. Because we don't only live in a place like Corinth, but that place is constantly bombarding us with transient relative truths. And we need to be holding on to the truth of the word of God. Corinthians looks a lot like my city. And if I am going to carry the fragrance of Christ into my street, into my neighbourhood, into my city. I need to be soaked in truth on a daily basis. And by studying this letter, we will be soaking ourselves in truth. Why do we need to know about Paul and about Corinth and about this church? Because it helps us understand this letter. Why do we need to understand this letter? Because we need to be soaking in truth that we would carry the fragrance of Christ out into our world. Andrew Wilson says this in his great book on 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians were a mess and God loved them anyway. It is vital that we think about grace and talk about grace but sometimes we just need to see grace. Sometimes we need to watch an exasperated apostle talking to a rebellious and divisive church with tenderness and affection and with a faith that believes in the transformation that can only come from the power of the Spirit, the example of Christ and the faithfulness of God. That's what this letter puts so richly on display. It brings hope to Corinthians everywhere, including you and me. That's why we're in this letter. We're in this letter because it's written to a situation like ours. We're in this letter because it is scriptural truth that cuts through the lies that we're constantly bombarded with. And we're in this letter because it will unpack challenges that we are facing. In this letter, Paul will deal with personality cults, 
disunity, idolatry, sex, singleness, marriage, church gatherings, diversity, spiritual gifts, mission, miracles, identity, fear, failure, food, foolishness, doubt, and spiritual disciplines. I don't know about you, but they're the issues I'm facing. Towards all these issues, he will apply grace, community, kingdom, and the power of God. He will apply love and a total dependency on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In verse after verse, he will remind us of our total dependence on God and our completeness and security in the work of Jesus on the cross. Paul will speak to us with firmness and father-like tenderness that springs from his own real faith and relationship with the risen Christ who he encountered so dramatically on the road to Damascus. We will study this letter together because it will do us good and it will equip us to do the good works of the kingdom which God knows the community around us needs us to do. And finally... We will study Corinthians because it's a book about mission. It is written by a man on mission to a church planted on mission and called to be a people on mission. It's it's written to a people who have been blown off course. The success of the gospel in drawing people from every area of life in Corinthians is threatening to be their downfall in their desire to be accessible and relevant to their city, they are in danger of becoming indistinguishable from their city. Paul is calling them back to the uniqueness, purity, unity and power of the gospel. Not so they become even more proud, but so they become even more missionally effective. Friends, we are called to be a missional people. We are called to display the uniqueness, the purity, the unity and the power of the gospel in every setting that we find ourselves. We mustn't get locked away in our holy huddles. We must embrace the world with the love of Jesus. But we must also hold on to our distinct uniqueness as children of the living God. The teaching we will encounter in this letter, the challenges put before us, are not meant to give us a stick with which to beat the world and criticise its behaviour. No, they are boundaries within which we are called to flourish as we seek to live life in all its fullness and carry the very power and grace and love and fragrance of Christ to our world. How we live our lives as we respond to the teaching in this letter should shape us in such a way that the world looks on and asks how and why and who. As we come in line with the truth of these pages, we should discover a world that looks at our lives and sees the uniqueness and the unity and the power and the praise that we work out and says, I want what you've got 
Tell me about the God that you know. I want to meet him. We will study this letter because it's written to a missional people to equip people for mission. And that is our goal this year. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your Holy Spirit that lifts your word off the page and seals it in our heart. This year, Lord, would you make us not just hearers or readers of the word, but obedient to your word, doers of the word, that we might be transformed and that our world might be challenged. Thank you, Lord. Amen.